Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What's the Crack? Today's episode is on intimate partner violence, and joining myself, Robin Lindsay, is Karen Bell- Bailey. Hi. Hi. Hello. And Karen is a PhD student from the National Addiction Centre. Um, So I guess we should start this episode with a slight trigger warning. Uh, We are talking about intimate partner violence, so we'll be speaking about rape, sexual abuse, so if any, and quite sensitive subjects. So just to bear this in mind, uh, continuing to listen to our podcast. So a quick definition of what intimate partner violence is. So intimate partner violence is domestic violence between two people in an intimate relationship. It can occur between heterosexual or homosexual couples, and the victims and perpetrators can be either male or female. Intimate partner violence can take a number of forms, from sexual, physical, emotional, financial, and verbal. And the reason why we're speaking of intimate partner violence today is because it's got close links with alcohol and drug abuse. Okay, so within this uh, episode, we are interchangeably using domestic violence and intimate partner violence, but there's a slight difference in what the government um, defines domestic violence to be, and it includes family members, so family members of above 16 years of age. As you've heard, we have an expert with us today. Karen, how was my definition? Is that right? Yeah, you did really well, and that that is the definition um, that tends to get used in uh, surveys or um, by government and uh, crime crime agencies but there's problems with that in terms of it's an incidence-based way of, of, uh, of reporting you're looking at specific incidences so when you hear the one in four women one in six men statistically talking about one in four men one in four women and one in six men have experienced an in- one of those incidents but really when, when, when we are talking about intimate partner violence we're talking about patterns of behavior and sometimes that gets lost in the, the whole statistic so it's very rarely one incident and in fact it, it's always a pattern of incidents that doesn't necessarily have to involve physical violence. Um, so I, I quite like to use the term coercive control which was put forward by a researcher in the US called Evan Stark which I think capt- captures much better women's experiences he referred to this term as the micro-regulation of everyday life. So he talks about attempts to take away victims' liberty or freedom, strip away their sense of self and violation of bodily integrity and human rights. Um, and it's much more akin to the tactics used by abusers in terms of coercive control and much more akin to those that would be used in, by um, people who are um, carrying out torture. 
So if you do look at the types of behaviour involved in torture, like um, isolation, trying to change someone's perception of themselves, the world, um, exhaustion, threats, this occasional indulgences, actually they're, they're the kind of behaviours that women report that their abusers have been carrying out towards them. So every part of their life has been <coughs> controlled from what they eat, what they are allowed to say, what they do, who they see. And I think that gives a lot more nuance to the understanding of what intimate partner violence is as opposed to sort of an incident of physical violence or an incident of emotional abuse. Mm. Um, so, uh, I mean, it, it kind of, I think we're talking a bit later about how it's related to uh, substance use, but I mean, there's something quite similar there already in that um, as a researcher, you're trying to kind of study and, um, uh, and record something that is almost by its own definition hidden. Um, from from view. So, uh, how how do those statistics uh, get generated? Like you were saying, the one in four, the one in six. Mm. Um, how are those things found out? Yeah, because a, so a lot of those behaviours I just described are not mm. classed as crimes. Mm. Um, so it, it is really difficult. So it tends to focus on specific incidents of physical violence. So in a survey, the British Crime Survey, the Crime Survey for England and Wales, it is um, we'll ask about specific acts: you okay. know, choking, strangling, hitting. The Crime Survey for England and Wales, when you're talking um, about intimate partner violence and domestic violence in general, um, it caps the number of incidents that someone can report they've experienced certain incidents of intimate partner violence or domestic violence. And intimate partner violence has one of the highest re-victimisation rates. So people experiencing tens, hundreds of these incidents, but when they're asked to report it in a British Crime Survey, lifetime or last 12 months, it, the, the only five of those specific ones would get recorded against the individual crime. And that really skews the figures. And Sylvia Wolby from Lancaster University did some really good piece of work. She, her and colleagues looked over um, the, um, the crime survey for 2011 and 2012, and they took off the cap and put estimates in. And if you remove that cap, actually there's an overall increase, 70% increase in domestic violence versus an overall increase estimated this is of 20% for stranger crime, which I think just highlights how you know there are problems with reporting and yeah. that it's skewing statistics and so forth. The problem about this incident base is it, it takes away all the, this idea of context, so it's focusing on specific acts mm. of abuse and violence without taking away the context of the harms inflicted, and that's another criticism of um, these incidents-based reporting. Um, you know, so when, and, and again, this kind of... Con end up with this view that there's a parity in terms of well men are experiencing the same levels or you know they're, they're experiencing high levels too um, you know and obviously without wanting to take away from you know every victim de deserves support male or female but we need to get to the bottom of some of this sort of idea that there's parity in statistics because when you start looking at repeated incidents you know the last time this was done properly in the crime survey again Sylvia Wolby back in 2004 that needs to be looked at again, but there's 89% of the people who experienced four or more incidents were women. So what are some of the myths surrounding intimate partner violence that are generally portrayed in the media or what we hear? I think there's, there's a huge myth going around about what is the role of alcohol. Alcohol particularly, because obviously that's the most prevalent substance that gets reported in terms of, sort of you know, all, all crime, isn't it? Um, but also with domestic violence. So I think there is a bit of this idea that kind of all domestic violence and um, you know all maybe rape and sexual assault is all kind of alcohol fueled. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but actually, if you do, if you look at the statistics, that that is not the case. So, sort of the most recent crime survey statistics, 2013 or 14, um, said that actually um, serious sex assault victims reporting being under the influence of alcohol is only in 29% of cases, and it's 3% for drugs. Um, and it's similar stats for um, domestic violence as well. So the majority of domestic violence, the majority of serious sexual assault is taking place without either the victims or the offenders being under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Um, and that stat around sexual assault also is interesting when you split it into who was, whether it's a stranger rape, stranger sexual assault or partner. So it was for, for victims of stranger assaults, 38% said they were under the influence of alcohol, whereas only 14% the victims who were the partner, the, the abuser was partner ex partner said they were under the influence of alcohol. So, um, so when you say they, do you mean the person perpetrating or the person who's the victim? The so victim. yeah, so you're kind of looking at around sort of thirty percent of victims said they were under the influence of alcohol. Um, and I do have the statistics for offenders. Yeah, so um, similar thirty. Uh, the victim reported that the offender was under the influence of alcohol in about thirty six percent the cases so yeah, oh, sorry. i was gonna say so this is around the idea that you know when that i guess around the messaging around sexual assault that you know women going out should be careful of what they're drinking and um they should look after themselves yeah look and, after themselves and that kind of i think that's probably where a lot of the myth around yeah. alcohol comes from i mean that kind of messaging but i think it's less less that messaging is around like men the risk to or the risk to anyone I suppose of getting drunk and then perpetuating yeah. some kind of assault you usually get that myth around victimhood so it's interesting that yeah it's kind of similar rates in those situations yeah there's been a couple of uh, public awareness campaigns about that recently I seem to remember there was one around Christmas about um, young men um, and, and and drinking too much and being at parties and being aware of, of not overstepping the boundary of, of sexual assault and harassment, I think, and, and there was the first time I'd seen it. I That's think that good. was in the last yeah, six months or something. Yeah, there's more. I mean, I'm aware of more local authorities in London taking that approach now. Yeah. You know, the posters are more about mm. men think about your actions or you know think yeah. about consent and all that kind of stuff, yeah. um, which is good. Yeah. yeah. Than, there's so. I think with the whole sexual assault stuff, there's so much victim blaming around women being responsible for being raped in the first place mm. by these you know they're kind of they're meaning well this kind of you need to look after yourself I mean they're generally good health messages you do need to look after yourself and are absolutely wasted and end up you know mm -hmm. face front down on the pavement like you know with your skirt up and like that no one wants that but by saying that's what you need to do in order to stop getting assaulted or raped well, it's just the statistic is just wrong um, and particularly with you know again a lot of the rapes and sexual assaults are within an intimate partner relationship or within um, yeah within someone that's known and um, there's that you know alcohol's not the problem here is the abuse the perpetrator mm -hmm. are there any other links with um, with alcohol um, just you know just with that as an example so it's not necessarily the case that um, Intimate partner violence is caused when people, or fueled by alcohol, when people are intoxicated. But are there other associations between people who are dependent on alcohol or who use a lot of alcohol and um, intimate partner violence in those relationships that isn't necessarily fueled by alcohol, mm. but actually has that that background layer? Are there any, are there are there other associations, I suppose, between? Yeah, and I think so. So I guess having said everything I've just said, there is important to acknowledge the role of alcohol um, and drugs within the perpetration, like, like you've just said. It's not. It, it it 
but it interplays with a lot of other contextual factors. So it's not it's not just or it's very rarely just the alcohol and drugs that is the cause of of the, the, the domestic violence. Because if you think about all those the way I described coercive control or all the types of incidents that can take place, you can see by just stopping the drugs and alcohol it's not going to stop all that um, you know, so if, 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 if someone has a certain way of behaving towards their partner, has particularly aggressive tendencies, if there's conflict in the relationship, if they have particular expectations about how their behavior, how their partner should be behaving in terms of, you know, the old traditional ones about needing my dinner um, on the table at a set time, not going out dressed in a short skirt, not going to see friends that are males. Uh, all those those expectations then combined with alcohol can you know increase the risk that there's going to be more conflict um, so it does you know there is research that shows that um, women are much more likely to call the police when alcohol is involved and it's much more likely to result in serious injury um, so that there there is a relationship mm -hmm. but I, I think it's wrong to think just addressing the alcohol and drugs problem is going to address this this wider problem and if, and if you think about, you know, the ways women reporting that the drugs and alcohol have been used against them, so manipulating their mental, you know, being told that things didn't happen because they were drunk or high at the time, they can't remember, you know, playing on their paranoia, playing on their mental health symptoms, symptoms moving things around the house so that they think that they're going slightly mad, um, threatening to report to social services about their drug use, um, to have the children taken away, you know, all those kinds of behaviours... Now they're not just because someone's been using drugs or, or alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, those kind of behaviours. Um, that kind yeah. of fits into those myths, doesn't it? About like you know, it's almost back to um, like the reefer madness myths that you have otherwise sane people who drugs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that that is drugs that turn people into awful, awful human beings or yeah. incredibly vulnerable uh, human beings. Um, Whereas otherwise they would be, you know, saintly souls. Um, I think the an the anthropologists have quite a lot to say about this. I, I think who, who are anthropologists? The, the anthropologists, yeah. the, the big who, 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 what, what, what anthropologists out there. They've got something to say about everyone. <laughs> I like their approach to this, like every studying alcohol culture. Wasn't bad, was it? Um, yeah, no, you, we better what, you want me to describe what anthropology is? Yeah, because people listening to it might I, know I what it really is. Know what I have no idea. It's the study of aspects of humans within past and present societies. Mm, um, ah. So I guess that really does contribute to this topic. Yeah. What have they been saying? So, Karen? so this is this kind of the study of the role of alcohol in societies has obviously, like most things, been going on for quite a while. Um, but there's, you know, recently. Um, Anne Fox brought out um, a report about, she's looking at um, the role of alcohol in Australia and New Zealand, where they have a really you know, problematic levels mm. of alcohol-fueled violence, as they call it, in the same way that we do in the UK. And you can see they have pretty similar cultures. And she was comparing you know, the, their cultures with other cultures that have very high uh, alcohol use. So she cites Iceland that has even more heavier alcohol use than we do in the UK and Australia and New Zealand. Um, they have more like 24-hour drinking. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today, we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. They have uh, more gun ownership, but have really, really low levels of alcohol-related violent crime. Um, and you know, you know they're, they're, the anthropologist's general explanation is, is the sort of, it's about alcohol expectancies and, and it's, how you expect to behave when you're drunk is very, very culturally specific. Um, and I mean, she cites um, Anne Fox cites of Italy as well, where if you know it's kind of a common accepted practice if, if men are kind of brawling or getting aggressive in a bar, that you know give them another drink because that will calm them down. <laughs> so it's just so I think it is quite interesting because I think that those arguments because you know they they talk about this, these underlying factors that I was mentioning before about tendencies towards aggression, um, you know maybe problems with emotional regulation tendencies. Um, to anger, those things combined with alcohol and then within domestic violence combined with these sort of expectancies of how you expect your partner to behave and what it means to be a man and masculinities, all that is interplays together, I think. And um, so you said quite a lot about alcohol. Are there any other kind of specific relationships with intimate partner violence and, and other drugs? Are there any? From the victim perspective, um, I think it could be quite interesting to think about how substances, different drugs might be used to cope with um, trauma. So, so women that have. So, obviously, my interest is around women who've experienced violence, both in childhood, childhood abuse, and domestic violence, or adulthood, or, or stranger rape, um, and have mental health problems as a result of that. Most commonly, like post-traumatic stress, is one of the most common associated um, mental health problems have with people who've experienced intimate partner violence, and um, the way you can use certain drugs and alcohol to cope with some of those symptoms. So post-traumatic stress, there's various different symptoms, but on the different end of the spectrum. So on one hand, you kind of have these numbing symptoms where people um, don't feel anything. There's symptoms akin to depression, um, feeling very bleak, feeling very, not, not, not you know, generally not feeling or, or dissociating or, or just cutting off the emotions. Kind of anhedonia. Oh, I don't know. What's that? It's a good word, isn't it? Yeah. An anhedonia. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Exactly what you were describing. Oh, okay. It's like the opposite of hedonism, the pursuit of kind of pleasure and a state of anhedonia is kind of inability to feel yeah. 
anything about anything. Absolutely, mm, yeah. Really lovely word. Yeah. Looks good on the page. Anadonia, well. I'll make sure I put that in my thesis. Yeah. That'll make me sound really intense. <laughs> um, so you've got that on one end. <laughs> then you've got... I mean, it's not working for Rob, so I don't know why you think that's going to work for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Right, so you've got. So, that, so you've got those numbing symptoms, yeah. the anhedonia, as you're talking about, and then at the other end you've got like hyperarousal, where people are like irritable, angry, they're hyper alert, they get, you know, they're, um, which are actually co really common. Imagine if you're like, experiencing violence from a partner, you, you're going to be hyper alert because you're going to be hearing for his footsteps and the way he shuts the door, because that might indicate how angry he is, or if he's been drinking, or what mood he's in, and. Um, and you can see how certain substances are going to be used to maybe cope with some of those symptoms. So like your stimulants and stuff are going to maybe bring you out of those numbing symptoms. Your depressants are going to bring you down from the hyperarousal. But equally, you're going to get people who are hyperaroused but will use stimulants anyway, and that's going to exacerbate stimulants. They're both real high-risk situations mm. for relapse. I mean, even if, um, even if someone has got to the point where they're trying to quit um, drugs or alcohol or trying to address that, those kinds of states of arousal or, or lack of um, arousal are, you know, the real high risk situations because Absolutely. everyone knows a way to deal with this, yeah. whether it's an effective one or not. Yeah, and I think that is pretty much a common accepted theory of the role of drugs and alcohol mm. um, among women who, or, or men, you know, because obviously men are victims of abuse and particularly childhood abuse and substance misuse services, mm. very overrepresented, like like women are. Um, so it makes sense. So if you're not going to address some of those underlying symptoms. You know, how can you expect someone to be stopping drugs and alcohol? Because people talk about being in detox, and the studies that have shown PTSD symptoms get worse when they're detoxed. And so obviously it's a really high-risk situation for relapse. I think that um, also something which is potentially relevant to this when talking about drugs and intimate partner violence is um, within heroin use, that whilst there's a much lower number of uh, females, like certainly in our society who are injecting drug users often they're um, initiated into injecting drug use by their partners or mm. by their husbands oh, okay. and I think that yeah. that's um, I guess something else there so maybe if people are in a relationship which is facilitating their drug use some women are kind of taken down into a more um, you know a way of using drugs which is worse for their health mm. and which is uh, going to have a lot more negative effects and I think that often comes out of the relationship that they're in and maybe they're dependency on their partner um so i guess that's and that could potentially link into coercive control and... yeah absolutely you know common things i used to hear women talk about was um you know being forced to exchange um sex for drugs and alcohol or um have sex with their partner's friends in order to get uh, to get their hit um, yeah i was going to say a lot of the kind of things that you were talking about reminded me of uh, um, those complexities around sex work about mm -hmm. um about uh, about trauma, about using drugs to deal with trauma, and and about a behaviour that then leads to the need to buy drugs mm. to deal with the trauma that that behaviour um, then kind of um, yeah, and then it's kind of this sort of vicious cycle because you can you can see then how you might be multiply victimised mm. because in situation you're in unsafe situations using if you're going to you know someone's house or a crap den or whatever. It's in, more likely than potentially to experience another form of assault, and so the whole, you know, the whole vicious cycle continues. Um, and you know, especially women get, who are involved in sex work to to um, fund their habit. You know, each time, just horrific stories of just 
you know, multiple victimization and worsening of symptoms every time they do that. So it's like they're trapped in this mm. cycle. So, so when drugs and alcohol don't necessarily uh, cause domestic violence, they're not the they're not the cause of, of perpetration or necessarily victim of this. It's certainly not going to help people get out of those situations yeah. or you know, exacerbate, I guess. Uh, and, and also, you know, there's just a lack of refuge provision yeah. for, for women who do have drug and alcohol problems. It's a serious problem, continues to be a serious problem, in that the majority of refuges won't take women who have you know, high level dependency around drugs and alcohol because they're not they're not fun unless there's such an underfunding of domestic violence refuges right now and it's just getting worse and worse um, and they, they're not funded to take to, to provide the support services that are needed for people who have a drug and alcohol problem is the different types of intimate partner violence that men experience over women or women experience over men is it like financial uh, intimate partner violence is mm. most likely to be victimised by women. No, or... that, that, that's, a really, that's a really good question, actually, because um, I think you've got a cohort of men in substance misuse services that might potentially be different to kind of your average, you know, in terms of experiencing violence from a partner. Um, because get, you know, the, Gail Gilchrist here at um, the IOPPN has done some work recently surveying um, men and women in substance misuse services about IPV. Um, and I think she showed that um, that 24% of the men in substance misuse services had experienced severe violence from their partner, which is which is really really high, um, you know. And we do know that that female IPV survivors um, do fight back within their relationships. I, mean, I think there's some stats that female IPV survivors who have a partner who's got drug and alcohol problems, like 55% reported. Um, physical violence towards them. So there, there's an issue there about who's doing what to whom and dual perpetration that does need addressing. Yeah. Um, but, some some mm. of the people um, that I remember working with were um, in, in drug treatment services, were in violent relationships. Um, and I think that's one of the interesting things about it changing from being called uh, domestic um, violence or domestic abuse to intimate partner violence that actually that started to then cover um, uh, couples, for want of a better word, who were in a violent relationship and there was violence in, in both directions and, and mm. initiated in both directions and coerce and control and mm. and all those things in both directions and, and that was you know it was really it was a real challenge to work with but um, really it really good. challenged my view of you always you have this traditional view of domestic violence being one person or you know mm. a, a perpetrator and a victim mm. and, and I guess the reality is often more nuanced. Yeah. Okay. So about the traditional victim, the traditional view of the victim. Yeah, I think there's this idea that sort of women, um, you know, are the kind of um, passive. Um, they're crying. They're the ones like hiding behind the sofa, kind of you know, not fighting back. But actually, the reality is women have a variety of kind of uh, tactics or behaviours in order to to live in their situation, and some of that is going to include fighting back. And again, this goes into the context stuff. So when we're talking about who's doing what to whom, this sort of how, you know, how is she responding? Why, where is the severe violence coming from on her part? Um, you know, is it, you know, it makes a big difference if she's, you know, stabbed, stabbed him in the leg, for example, but that's because he's got her pinned up against the wall with his hands around her neck, you know. So if you don't take that wider context, we just think he's reported an incident of severe violence from his partner, but you haven't heard the whole the whole story, um, you know. And sometimes you are going to get women who are the sole 
perpetrators as they are, you know, they're causing fear and control. But there's actually in the whole big picture, that's actually quite a small, a small percentage. Um, and in order to keep everybody safe, because we want everyone to be safe here, <laughs> we don't want anyone dying, you know, we need to understand some of these nuances rather than just being like, well, she's as bad as him. Would you be able to talk a bit about what you're doing in your PhD? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so I'm I'm vo I'm sort of focused on um, on women who've experienced violence either in childhood or adulthood, and have post-traumatic stress. And traditionally, you can't you you don't get your issues around post-traumatic stress addressed unless you you know are clean from drugs and alcohol. So in secondary mental health services here. Um, very rarely can you get any sort of um, evidence-based PTSD therapies unless you've had a sustained abstinence from drugs and alcohol, which I mean, you've got a whole pot of people who, like we talked about, can't stop their drug and alcohol use unless they've treated their post-traumatic stress, but, but they can't get access to services unless they've stopped their drug and alcohol. Um, so, you know, in an attempt to address that, um, we're doing a, a, a group work program and it's very present focused so it doesn't involve going into trauma memories it's very much about developing coping skills for emotional regulation and some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress um, and to see whether that has any impact in um, feeling safer and reducing drugs and alcohol um, it's a program called seeking safety from the US which has been rolled out a lot in the US um, and has um, an evidence base for its effectiveness can I ask maybe a stupid question? But feasibility study, does that mean study whether it's feasible? To do a trial, yeah, absolutely. So it's not, we're not evaluating whether it works or not, we're evaluating whether um, women come, can, can we ask them all these personal questions about violence, um, drug use, uh, mental health, will they answer those questions? Do they like the intervention? Will they stay? And the idea is, is there some data there to show there's any promising potential pre and post data of outcomes to see is it promising, you know, is this worth trying to get funding for for a proper randomised control trial. You know, and I think so integrated interventions generally, I guess if that's my one take home message around this, is that we need to have integrated approaches to intimate partner violence and drug and alcohol use, both for victims and perpetrators. So I've talked about um, you know, work primarily with victims and Gail Gilchrist here at IOPPN is doing a randomised control trial designing an intervention for men who have drug and alcohol problems um, and also uh, perpetrating intimate partner violence and hoping to address some of these complexities around um, you know, how they're perpetrating and then some of their own issues because these men also have their own trauma histories, how you deal with some of that stuff and do it in a way that's safe and doesn't sort of play into their own sort of narcissism or victim blaming or not taking responsibility. Um, okay, so a more sombre uh, episode this week but very interesting all the same um as usual you can contact us on at what the crap pod on twitter and find all uh, all the links will be available on acast and you can find us on itunes please subscribe thanks again for listening and tune in in two weeks thank you very much bye bye bye
Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.